Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 47th episode, I'll be talking to Elizabeth Alley, co-host of Thor, The Lightning and the Storm, and public relations for GeekCraft Con about the uncanny X-Men and the mighty Thor. Along the way, we discussed Themyscirian wine tastings, what to look for in parent-child cosplay, and a promising comic book publisher that was sadly cut down before its time. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Oh boy. Well, I'm Elizabeth Alley. I am currently co-host of the Walter Simonson Thor podcast, Thor, The Lightning and the Storm. And I also do PR and promotion for Geek Craft Expo, which is a handmade geeky craft fair that takes place in several cities across the United States. And it has all kinds of cool stuff that people actually make themselves, which I enjoy. And it just happened, didn't it? Like, it just happened, like, a couple of weeks ago. We just had our second Portland one in June. So, yeah, our our first one was June of 2016, and that was the first Geekcraft Expo I was involved in at all. At first, I was only supposed to be working on the Portland one and then the Seattle one, and now the organizers, Daniel Way, the comic book writer, he worked on Deadpool for many years and Wolverine Origins and things. But as time has gone on, Somehow my role has expanded to cover all the Geekcraft Expos, so (laughs) I know where to get all kinds of knitted Cyclops figures and, you know, cross-stitch Superman. (laughs) I could definitely see your role expanding because you've been described by former guest of the show, Angela of the Double Clicks, as being the most organized person she knows. Oh, wow. Hey, that's cool. (laughs) I do my best. I think the exact quote was, everyone should have an Elizabeth. Aw, well, that is very sweet. Everybody should, you know, have an Angela Weber, too, and a double clicks. So I started my geeky career back in 1996 when I interned at Dark Horse Comics. I kind of stumbled into it. Actually, what I did, and this is super embarrassing, but at the same time, I wish I still had it. I made a submission. I drew. I'm not an artist. I drew some comic book pages and submitted them to Dark Horse when I was in college. And I got this very kind, constructively critical response from Jamie S. Rich, who's now at DC. But at the same time, of course, it just made me cry and cry and cry. And at the end of the letter, because it was a letter back in those days, he said, well, I'll pass on your resume. And if anything comes up, we'll let you know. And I kind of poo-pooed it. And then a couple months later, I was contacted and told there was a marketing internship. At first, I was disappointed that it wasn't an editorial internship. 
But when it got there, it turned out to be far more interesting, at least at that time. It's probably different now. Their marketing department back in 96 was three or four people. So they had me writing the press releases and the diamond copy. And, you know, back then you'd send big, thick packets of preview materials, which would be photocopied comic book pages to different magazines and things. It ended up being a really interesting job that kind of shaped my career going forward. You read some stuff about music magazines in the 70s, like someone stepping in to be like a photographic intern in the 70s and just being like, oh, it's this gateway into this thing and you're kind of an all-arounder and it's like, right, we need someone to go and do this thing. Hi, and maybe we'll even pay you. But this sounds like the same kind of thing of like getting in early on the ground level. Sure. I actually went back to school for my senior year and I kept doing the job back then, like faxing through my dial-up internet computer and all of that. But unfortunately, when I graduated, they didn't have the money to bring me on full-time. So I ended up kind of working in advertising and software companies. I ran away from home for about five years and became a waitress on uh, Martha's Vineyard. And then when I came back, I stumbled upon a job listing at Things From Another World, which is Dark Horse Comics' sister company. And it's a comic book retailer. They've got four physical stores and a website, (laughs) tfaw.com. And they hired me on for marketing. And I worked there for about six years until my daughter was born and we kind of did the math against childcare for two people versus my salary and my salary lost (laughs) but the kids won so that's good i'm gonna have to worry about that aren't i oh god (laughs) (laughs) yep 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 but you know i really did intend to i love to cook i love to make things so i was like oh i'll be a housewife for a while but things keep kind of falling in my lap geek craft expo daniel way called my husband, Scott Alley, who works at Dark Horse and was telling him about how he needed a local person for that show. And Scott was like, oh, you should talk to my wife. And then once that was kind of public, Angela the Double Clicks contacted me and asked, you know, oh, am I doing PR? And now I'm actually literally, I've been working with a wine bar that bills itself as Portland's weirdest wine bar, Pairings Portland. And I've been helping them out. They did a Wonder Woman wine flight last night where they pair eight wines to eight different Wonder Woman characters. Okay. And that was just fascinating. You have my attention. I know. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't go through all the flight because I had to drive my babysitter home afterward, but I got through like about five of the wines, you know, just sips, people, just sips. But yeah, I love to cook. I've worked as a waitress. I've cooked a little bit professionally, but I've always been intimidated by wine so that they pair wines to adjectives was something that I could really connect with. They're going to do like a Game of Thrones thing. They're going to do Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They, they do it all. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say there'd be a lot of reds in both of those. I would assume. There were a surprising number of white wines in the Wonder Woman wines, but it was very interesting because they'll have a listing of the characters and then, you know, they'll have like Etta Candy, you know, Under the Radar, Spunky, you know, Great Sidekick. And when you taste the wine while seeing these adjectives, you're like, oh, like the Dr. Poison wine was like... Oh, yes, this is a Dr. Poison wine, but I did live, so. (laughs) Nice. Poison by nature, if not by actuality. Yes, yes. If I had kept on drinking eventually, I could have gotten alcohol poisoning, I guess, but. (laughs) (laughs) See, I love stuff like that because there's a winemaking region 
adjacent to Sydney called the Hunter Valley, which does a lot of Australian wines. And I became sort of enamored of it with my ex. We would often do trips up there and we'd, you know, buy things and go tasting and stuff. And I learned very quickly that when you go to a cellar door, you should not use unusual euphemisms or strange adjectives, no matter how true they seem to you. If you say them out loud to someone whose job it is to make that wine, you will get the side eye of your life. Like, <laughs> my one example is I went to the Peterson Champagne House and they had a particular, I think it was a Pinot Grunier Champagne, which was very interesting. And I took a sniff and I could, the only thing I could say was that it smelled of dog. And oh. what I was trying to say was that it smelled a bit like lanolin, like the way if you've got like a golden retriever that you've just washed that's, you know, come in from outside and has that nice clean kind of smell. And I was trying to say that. Sure. And all I did was just tell a winemaker that his very nice champagne smelled like a dog. No matter how much backpedaling you give, the relationship isn't the same after that. Sure, sure. I guess I can see that. Yep. (laughs) But yes, it's a cool little wine shop. Are you still a wine aficionado? Yes, yes, I I quite enjoy it. Although what I found is that when you subscribe to a wine membership and they send you like a little taster pack, like maybe once every six months of like, here's our new stuff, see what you think. And then your partner gets pregnant. Those things tend to stack up because committing to a whole bottle of wine on your own, it's something you can't do every day. And so like I'm looking around now and I've got two wine racks in sight and they're both very full and I may have to suspend that membership for a little while until we catch up. Sure. Yeah, I have the same issue because my husband's sober and both my children are under 21. So I don't actually usually buy wine unless we're having a dinner party or Mm -hmm. a brunch or something like that. So I'm getting all this information, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I'm not going to be drinking this whole bottle of wine by myself. (laughs) Not today anyway. (laughs) My friend Mary actually came up with an idea. Uh, She was saying that you should be able to buy something called a weekdayer which is a half bottle of wine at a reasonable price, like say between 10 and $15, that is just enough for a glass and a half or maybe two glasses. Yes. It's not going to mess you up. There's not going to be a ton of leftovers that throughout the week you're looking, you're going, oh, I've got to drink that before the air gets to it. But it's just the idea of it's like, you know, you're on the way home from work. You've had kind of a crappy day. That's what you want. Of course, this is the very opposite of the way I briefly operated in college, where me and my roommate in my dorm room, we decided to each get a gallon of like the very cheapest. We have something here called Carlo Rossi wine and in a massive fit of bravado. (laughs) I thought you were going to drop a Thunderbird reference. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yes. And we each put our gallon under our desks and of course by the time you know far before we could drink it all it had turned to exceptionally bad vinegar but uh (laughs) i think we thought we were buying in bulk we were being very sensible but it didn't turn out that way i'm just picturing it as this very long straw coming from out the bottom of the desk you're just (laughs) frantically typing for a paper or something and taking little sips like you're in the desert and you've got a camel back on yeah yeah Yeah, I think my taste buds were uh, bigger than my liver there, so. (laughs) Yeah, but the last winery I went to, I think it's DeSalis in Orange, which we were up there for a wedding, and because we're at that age now where friends are having weddings in other places than where they live, and so you then have to go to them. Sure. And so we went there, and we had like half a day before we had to come home, and we went up to a winery, and... I got a speech from this winemaker that has impressed me and no other winemaker has where she was like, okay, so what we did is that we took a particular varietal and we cloned it four times. And I'm like, okay, you have my attention. And they went, okay. And so what we did is we raised each of those cloned varietals in different settings 
and we treated them differently to bring out certain things in each one. So if you've got A, B, C, D things, A strain has all of the A really strong and B has all the B. And then we mix those selectively. So you've got a single vineyard and a single grape varietal, but you get a completely rounded experience like it's a blend. And I was sitting there with my eyes as big as saucers. I'm like, tell me more about this science wine. That is amazing. That sounds like the Jean Grey of wine. Totally. <laughs> I was going to say, I did notice a little red diamond in the middle of her forehead. Actually, no, she was she was wearing a poncho and had little gold pince-nez glasses on. And she was the coolest lady I had seen in a while. But yeah, that's awesome. could have been Mr. Sinister. You never know. <laughs> you never know. You'd be branching out. He's like, I'm done with the super villainy. Why don't we do something nice for the world and make some complex yet accessible wines? Yeah. Viticulture is where it's at. <laughs> Essex wines, TM, TM, TM. Yeah. <laughs> this is Sinister's like hipster phase. <laughs> All right, Elizabeth. So whereabouts did you grow up? I live in Portland, Oregon, and I grew up mostly in a suburb of Portland called Tualatin, which when we moved there in 79, it had about 2,000 people. And its main claim to fame was that it had a dog food factory. But as <laughs> Portland, <laughs> yes, sounds very picturesque. It all used to be farmland and things like that. Didn't even have a McDonald's at that time, which you could tell we were out in the boonies. <laughs> but as Portland has grown and grown, Tualatin has grown. It's probably close to 40,000 people now. And it's all strip malls. And fortunately, neither I nor my parents nor my brother live there anymore. So what Tualatin did have to recommend it was a fine comic shop. That it was definitely a big part of my upbringing was the comic shop there, which went through several incarnations and then eventually turned into more of a game store and then finally closed last year, which was years after I had stopped going there, but was still a little bittersweet. Were you doing the kid thing that I know I did, and I'm sure many people did, which is where you go in and you do your best to power through as many issues as you can before they kick you out? Or were you going and like loading up and taking them home to pour over? So when I started reading comics, I would actually read them at our local 7-Eleven, you know, a convenience store. Mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. sure you guys probably yeah, we have. Them and my brother and I would absolutely do that there. We would sit there and read as many Archie comics as we could before we got kicked out. But I didn't really get into collecting or superhero comics until I was 14. And this place was pretty small and I kind of treated it like the library at first like I would just go in and be very reverent and like pick up my one you know new uncanny x-men and then as many back issues as I could manage I would barely speak to anyone and then I would run out of the store and go read them <laughs> so <laughs> I was a little intimidated I guess it's a combination of a library but. and like potentially buying porn and that you're a little bit scared you're worried someone might spot you <laughs> And you book it as fast as you can. And also, hey, both come in brown paper bags. That is true. I didn't even think. Well, eventually I became friends with all the guys who worked there. I actually really wanted to work there, but the owner at the time refused to hire girls. Uh, he told what? me that he would have to... Yeah, he said that the guys working there would have to pay him, you know, if there was a, a pretty girl working there, so... Mm. That guy was hardly ever there. Yeah, problematic. It was the late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. and that guy was hardly ever there. But I did become fairly good friends with all the guys who worked there, and they were able to introduce me to a bunch of comics, which was awesome. The reason I brought up the comparison with the brown paper bag is I have a distinct memory of up the street from my dad's work, there was a comic shop. 
And yes, I would go in and read them off the shelves, but I never had any money to buy the comics because that was, you know, the middle of the 90s and comics had taken a big uptick in price because everything was fancy and had the collectible covers and all the other things. But what I would do to get by is I would go to the bargain bin and I would buy the handbook to the Marvel Universe, the ones that you could pull out and put in a binder. Yes. And so I would sneak those home after buying them for like $3.99, put them in an actual binder from school and leap through them that way. And I was, I don't know why, but I had it in my head because I was, I was maybe 13 or 14. And so I had it in my head that if my parents saw me with this, that it was a childish thing and I would get yelled at or I would be told I was wasting my money. So I would like sneak it into my house under my jacket. (laughs) And looking back, I'm like, my dad read Batman and Superman in the shadow when he was a kid. You know, he'd probably be okay with it. You know, you're at that age where you kind of feel like to be a real grown up, you got to have your own secrets. You know, I think it makes it more fun, more special somehow. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Before that, I had been a fairly boring, regular bookworm. And I'd always been highly praised for all my reading, you know, going to the library and all that. So I don't know if my parents really raised an eyebrow when I started reading superhero comics, but I had always grown up knowing that reading was good. So, and and for me, discovering Uncanny X-Men, it was like discovering a favorite book that never ended. (laughs) It's something I've spoken to previous guests of the show, Elle Collins, about, and I've quoted them at length but this idea of stepping into a world where there are references that you don't understand and most readers response to that is to just go right well i just need to commit to this long enough till i start getting the references absolutely did you find that as much of a barrier to entry when you started or did you just immediately like knuckle down and keep reading oh i knuckled down like i would take note of where there'd be an asterisk and be like as seen in issue whatever and i would keep an eye out for that issue. I mean, I started reading X-Men, let's see, it must have been 1989. So that was right around X-Men Inferno. Oh, yes. Which was a really bizarre place to start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, all the clones, you know, Jean Grey, what? But at the same time, they were doing the classic X-Men reprints, which was the John Byrne era right before Dark Phoenix. So it was weirdly mm. complimentary. But it was more, I think, the John Byrne stuff that was like, okay, I need to find all of these. Like, way more than my brother, I, like, took all my babysitting money and would go, you know, as often as I could and get as many 2 and $3 back issues that I could find. Sort of assembling a timeline. Yep, yep. And, you know, there would be those certain comics that were, you know, oh, $10, and, you know, I'd hold off on those. I was actually quite fortunate in those pre-Google days. So I was in the eighth grade, I was 14, and I had a good male friend that I'd been friends with for about a year, year and a half, and we lived in the same neighborhood. We had some of the same classes, so we'd talk on the bus ride to and from school and at school, and I knew him fairly well. But it wasn't until I came back from Hawaii and said, hey, I've gotten into X-Men comics, that he was like, oh, I've got them all. And he proceeded to like fill me in on a verbal history of the Uncanny X-Men while my jaw just dropped. Like, why wouldn't you, you know, mention this before? But perhaps when you say how you would hide it from your parents, I'm like, I wonder now if he was going through, you know, a similar feeling there. It's like, oh, me and this person are getting along. Maybe they'll judge me if I reveal this. But instead, it was like this key to this larger thing. It was wonderful. In fact, he and I decided that we would form our own comic book company. This is how I came to be in possession of my own poorly drawn 
comic book pages because he had this idea for a comic that he'd been writing in his head for a long time and he wanted me to be the artist which was ridiculous but I was game (laughs) and we didn't get very far we got as far as sometimes I would call a printer and ask you know what their printing options were and they would say oh we do four color printing and I think god four colors like how are we gonna do a comic with only four colors (laughs) (laughs) years later when I was at Dark Horse they still had the multi-layered film there and they showed me Mm the CYMK you know with the black and I was like oh (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i never became a comic book mogul (laughs) (laughs) it's that sliding doors moment yep yep exactly (laughs) in that timeline there's now a big three and elizabeth comics is up there yes yes later he and i had a massive falling out and i wrote him you know an epic kiss off letter and at that point we had a couple other artists you know under our label other friends of ours and i said i'm taking this character that i created and you know aaron and jason are coming with me and i'm forming my own company <laughs> it was called astara oh my god <laughs> so you had your own like little image comics spin-off <laughs> i'm taking my ball and going home <laughs> I named my company Ostara. It was after some goddess of Easter, and I drew a little logo for it, and I came up with my own super team that was clearly a ripoff of the X-Men. Only the female characters were developed at all, and now when I look back, I realize they all were connected to cats, so... I'm just saying, develop female characters related to cats in some way. There is a market for that right the hell now in the year of our Lord 2017. You know, I fall into everything else. Maybe that's what I'll fall into next. I was going to say, I know we have some Valkyries who listen to the show. We can get that going. Totally. I'll show him, my old friend. I'll be like, ha, took me 30 years, but here I am. Uh, oh wow See, I'm, I'm just like yeah just extrapolating what could happen there but sure. something i wanted to ask because this is something that i haven't brought up on the show before but it's something i've always wondered about because when i started reading more comics at first i was reading whatever anyone would give me and so that included like you know friends of my dad or people who came to like because my dad in his off time would run a, a martial arts club in vancouver and so all the guys that would come to work out would hear that i was interested in comics and like bring me whatever they had I was sort of this kid who would just accept whatever it was given and take it all at face value. So I remember I read, there was a reprint of the first six Fantastic Four issues. And I was reading that at the same time that I was reading the first Alien vs. Predator comic. And this idea where I was giving them the exact same reverence and treating it with the exact same seriousness. And like this idea that when you're a kid, you don't really know what bad is for a while. Oh, sure. So you just kind of... Yeah, everything gets the same level of attention. So was that just me or was there something in that there? (laughs) Well, for me, so I started reading Archie Comics and I loved Archie Comics. I still love Archie Comics. My next exposure to comics, I had an aunt and uncle and two cousins who lived in a nearby suburb. And my cousin Brian, he was probably, I don't know, six years older than me, which when you're 10 is like, and he was like a different species. Oh, it's a huge difference, yeah. Yeah, he had like a leather jacket and like feathered hair and he listened to uh, Ozzy Osbourne and I was terrified of him. But he had <laughs> comics <laughs> and my aunt knew I was a reader. So she'd be like, go into Brian's room and get some comics. So I would sneak in his room and grab, he had New Teen Titans and Warlord. 
So I would grab them and bring them back to my cousin Danny's room and read them. But I got into X-Men kind of similarly because I was on vacation with my folks and we ran out of Archie's and my younger brother brought home some X-Men. And at first I kind of dismissed them as boy comics, but then I grew desperate for reading material and read them. But other than that, I really didn't have anyone in my life who was giving me comics. I had like a limited amount of money, but also when I would look at a lot of comics, I would kind of dismiss them as, you know, boy comics or just things that I wouldn't be interested in. So it wasn't until later when I worked at Dark Horse that I was kind of open to this whole other world of non-X family comics. I know it's going to come to this at a certain point, but I've got to ask, because considering that The Lightning and the Storm is, it's on what, is it episode 10 now? Yes, 11 will debut tomorrow, and we have just two more episodes to record. Mm. And listeners, I'm telling you right now, if you're not listening to Thor, The Lightning and the Storm, you should be listening to Thor, The Lightning and the Storm, (laughs) because it's amazing. And Walt Simonson is amazing, and Thor is amazing. Yes, thank you. So, I want to ask where Walt Simonson's Thor specifically dropped into your life, because I will preface this slightly, in that one of the first comic books I ever read like that was in my room from when I was about six till maybe, I don't know, 17 or 18. It was just, there were three books that were always there. And it was three issues of mid-80s Thor that my Uncle Philip had gotten me. And each of them was a cliffhanger and none of them were sequential. So I only learned what happened in those books like two years ago. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. (laughs) But I remembered looking at it and thinking... Like this, this is incredible. This is this larger than life thing. This is unlike any other comic I was reading because this wasn't about people robbing banks and quipping and webbing someone's mouth and then punching them across an alleyway. This was epic and huge and everything had this incredible sense of bombast. And little did I know that those comics, which I think were like some Roy Thomas or someone else who was writing them later, they paled in comparison to the epic metal awesomeness that was Walt Simonson's Thor. So I will now step away from the microphone. Tell me your experience with Walt Simonson's Thor. So when I got into superhero comics, it was after Walter Simonson would have left Thor. But I think at the time, I would have kind of dismissed them either as boy comics or I just wasn't as interested in solo comics. I liked the team aspect of the X-Men. My first introduction to Walter Simonson was actually in X-Factor, reading the X-Factor issues of Inferno and actually it almost pains me to say I didn't really care for his art like next to Mark Silvestri's very you know beautiful kind of sexy ladies like his rendering of women looked blocky to me and and I was just kind of like huh like I didn't hate it but I didn't appreciate it as I got older and I became more involved in the comics industry Walter Simonson's Thor was you know it's like the war and peace of comics. There's certain books of literature that you're supposed to read to be a well-rounded person. And Walter Simonson's Thor was something that was always brought up, much like Daredevil Born Again or, you know, Swamp Thing, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. So I think I had picked up bits of it. I'd pick up a book and read it and it seemed nice and good, but that kind of light contact didn't really grab me. Now, I knew Miles, my co-host, Miles Stokes, who is also the co-host of the amazing Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. He and I met years ago because he works in MIS at Dark Horse and Tifa, where I worked, is their sister company. So whenever I needed my computer fixed, I would jump the queue system and I would call Miles directly because he would come over and we'd talk comics. So that led to me 
eventually being the occasional guest host at Explain the X-Men. But when they were going on hiatus, the last time Miles and I had worked together, he had mentioned, I knew he was a huge Walter Simonson fan. I mean, he's got, you know, sketches and his signature, you know, hanging in his cubicle. Like he loves Walt Simonson. And he said, well, during this hiatus, I'm thinking about doing a Walter Simonson Thor podcast. And I was just like, hmm. And later I was like, is he asking me? Like, does he want me to do it? Is he just bouncing it off me? And then like a month later, he emails me and he's like, his long email, he's like, well, I think we should do this. Would you like to do this? And I just wrote back, I've been wondering when you were going to ask me, Miles. So <laughs> I was like, I've been waiting. Like, This is like one of those, oh, I thought it was a date and it turned out to be a dinner party with a bunch of people. And oh, it's so awkward. Exactly. I was like, I'm not putting my neck out. He's got to ask me. You know, he's got to fall. You know, I'm a, I'm a rules girl. No, I'm not really a rules girl. <laughs> so reading it for the podcast is really the first time I had read it front to back and of course when reading it for a podcast when you're going to be talking about it at length our method is very much you know writing in-depth notes and discussing it amongst ourselves and putting together an outline and it's just captivating like it's amazing it's everything you say it's epic and cosmic and it's so well written you know like the major you know conflicts and everything walter simonson much like chris claremont is famous for dropping a reference or a breadcrumb somewhere and then five ten fifteen years later it leads somewhere like a lot of people when they talk about walter simonson's thor one of the benefits of it is you don't really need to read thor before that or after that like it kind of lifts out as its own thing and I believe it's because it's so well characterized and it's so well thought out like for people who are unfamiliar in the beginning there's this major villain called Suter which I used to call Searcher but is Suter (laughs) and for the first I believe 12 issues you just see a little bit of narration and someone creating a sword you know and then at the end of that you've learned who Surtur is and why he's going to try to destroy Asgard and, and everything like nothing is wasted nothing is finger waved away as oh comics that worked out because of comics like it's very intelligent the layouts are incredible like I actually think part of my problem to defend myself with X-Factor is that Walter Simonson's art really lends itself better to the cosmic majesty than kind of the family of superheroes. But my favorite part, I think, actually, is his depiction of 1980s New York and New Yorkers, which is just (laughs) charming and wonderful. (laughs) I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Anytime any medium, be it a TV show or a comic book or whatever, attempts to be current and of the moment it's actually a far better period piece than any attempt to go back and Absolutely. and like recreate something. Like my the example I always go to is when you're watching A League of Their Own and all the stuff in the 40s looks amazing, but it's the stuff in the 90s that bumps because you look at it now and you're like, "Wow, that hair and those outfits and everything is exactly as much of a time capsule as this 1940s women's baseball league. Totally. It's like how Happy Days is as much a time capsule of the 70s as the 50s. Or any time in Star Trek where they go back to the present, like when Voyager goes to the 90s and Tom Paris like chats up Sarah Silverman. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Absolutely. 
And it's funny because it is such a depiction of the 80s, and yet that feels like it's aged well as well because it is such a sincere and appreciative take on the styles and errant frisbees of the 80s because everybody (laughs) in New York in a comic gets hit in the head by a frisbee at one point or another. Uh, I'm a longtime listener of Jane Miles. So when they got up to things like the Mutant Massacre. Comixology has been very helpful in that we'll just go back and get the whole trade and read it through. And the bits of Thor I saw there, where Thor kind of jutted into that and like saved Angel and he was, you know, going around in his Sigurd Thorson or Sigurd Jarlson, what's the name? Sigurd Jarlson, yeah. That's the one, Sigurd Jarlson. When he like goes back to the construction site and meets his boss's family and it's this lovely little moment followed by him saving Angel and like fighting off the marauders on his own and i'm just like oh wow this is like this little corner of a much bigger story and then out of nowhere i think it was in like a secondhand bookstore i found the uh, frog of thunder big <gasps> omnibus one and, and i remember just like reading that and seeing some of the sacred Johnson in that one too and i'm like there's something to this i need to find more of this and luckily your podcast came around just in time <laughs> <laughs> So is this, are you reading along for the first time as well with, I mean, fully with the podcast? I've read chunks of it because I also listened to War Rocket Ajax and they mentioned the moment on the Bridget Gallerbrew. So I had those three issues on their own, which, oh my God. Sure. Even your podcast episode about that is just incredible. It's like, it stands out in a way that the issues themselves stand out in that also amazing run. So yeah, I've been doing it in chunks, but it's since the podcast has started, I've been going, there's a uh, remaindered bookstore called Basement Books that will occasionally have like super cheap remaindered comics. And I've been going through and just waiting to pounce on the next volume whenever they bring it out. Nice. Yeah, that episode with uh, Yellow Brew, that's when, you know, Thor and the Asgardians go to hell and the executioner makes his last stand. I give full credit for that episode's grandeur two miles, like for Miles, like this was his ground zero. These were the comics he loves above all else. And as you know, Miles is a very accomplished podcaster. He's very good at what he does. He's passionate. He's committed. He works very hard. And it was rare for me to see him as nervous as he was after that episode because he just wanted it to be so good. Like usually I'm the nervous one because I'm just starting out. But it's lovely to hear that because of course I enjoyed it and I loved it. But Miles bled that. <laughs> oh, wow. I can just imagine what Mr. Stokes is thinking with that Thor Ragnarok trailer. And there is a picture of Carl Urban as the executioner with two machine guns. And I stood up on the bus because I was like, oh my God, they might do it. I reckon they're going to do it. I'm wondering about that because are they going to do the Enchantress? I mean, to me, the Enchantress is like such a big part of that and why the executioner you know went there why he you know sacrificed himself and so i Mm. i kind of doubt that the movie will introduce a character like that with the movie you only have so many minutes you only have so much room for so Mm. much scope especially for a character who hasn't been introduced in the movies as of yet so it makes me curious if they do a similar story like how they're going to frame that. Considering they're also kind of tying it into Planet Hulk with the whole gladiator thing. It's it's one of those ones where it's like, is this going to be a Transformers last night situation? Where it's like, we've got three hours and two minutes. Have fun. Somehow I have more faith in Taika Waititi than I do in Michael Bay. Yeah. For good reason. Yes. Miles and I just recently watched the first two 
movies back to back and it was the first time I had seen them since they were in the theater and the first time I'd watched Mm. them since I had read the Walter Simonson Thor and I was a little bit nervous because I feel like part of the reason I could enjoy them was because I wasn't terribly close to the source material. Read how I've never been fully satisfied with any X-Men movie except for maybe Logan. But it was actually very nice to have that background in my head as I rewatched them. So I really hope, I have faith right now at least, that they'll do good with Ragnarok. All I want is I want Fultstag in that I Love New York shirt. That's all I want. Yes! Absolutely. (laughs) I want him to go into Macy's and marvel over the nonstick cookware and be confused that there is no beer in that beer hall. (laughs) Or mead, excuse me, mead. And as a new parent, I would be lying if I didn't say that Volstagg with Hildy on his chest has not come into my mind as a possible cosplay option. (laughs) See, that works well when the babies have... I would require a lot of padding. (laughs) Well, you could grow your beard, you know, if that could be great. That's true, yeah. Although I, I still say the best parent-child cosplay I ever saw was a little baby in a baby Bjorn as Wonder Woman and the dad holding it as a cloud with rainbows that Wonder Woman would ride on. <gasps> and I'm like, that, that is excellent. That is fantastic. You two win everything. Yes. <laughs> My Simpson is 12, and I've been trying to convince him that for Halloween that we should cosplay as Spider-Man and Aunt May. Oh, nice. Yep, yep, yep. How's his take on it? Is he for it? What he said was, what the fuck? You know, which is a joke from the movie, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. He used to wear a lot of costumes when he was, you know, when he was four or five, he wore a Spider-Man costume every day. But now that he's in middle school, Mm -hmm. he might think that's a little passe. (laughs) The other costume that keeps coming to my mind is there's one from, do you watch it or read Attack on Titan? No, no, I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. Okay, elevator pitch of that is it's a bunch of kind of teenage child soldiers and they have these kind of harpoons that lets them spider ran around the city and they fight these big giants that can only be killed by cutting them on the back of the neck in a certain spot, which makes for amazing action sequences and, you know, little people versus like, you know, anywhere from 15 to 60 foot giants. And it's really, really cool and action oriented. And I saw a cosplay of a mum as a titan and a little two-year-old as one of the soldiers with a little jacket and the swords and everything. And it was to scale. And I thought that was amazing. (laughs) That is so cute. But also a little bit traumatizing because that kid should not be watching Attack on Titan because that show is brutal. I I would hope that there's a situation where they have child actors and they have them like uh, the kid in The Shining. Supposedly he never really knew what was happening. They did it all out of context. So hopefully that's that's, that's that deal. Good. It's like there's a, oh God, I'm going to date myself here. On the Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula DVD, there is a, a little behind the scenes documentary with, because in that movie, when Lucy is turned, she comes back as a vampire and she has this like little three-year-old girl that she's kind of hanging on to that she's going to eat. That's right. In order to not traumatize the child, they had the kid sit along with the lady who played Lucy in the makeup chair. And so they would like have her say, like, look, you see, I'm putting on these things. It's not scary. You've seen every step of it. And that way, when we're in the scene, we're just playing. It's just a game. You remember it's me. I'm your friend. So it's as not to traumatize the girl. It didn't work. Because there's then 
all this stuff in the behind the scenes of this kid absolutely freaking out and just cry doing that that crying where there's no words in it just the (laughs) (laughs) this poor woman playing lucy is just like no it's okay see it's i'm not scary see i'll take the teeth out see it's fine and i'm just like yeah Oh, that poor child. I would think a three-year-old, someone taking their teeth out would still be really scary. (laughs) (laughs) My dad had dentures from about 35, so he used to do that to freak out my my friends when I was a kid. He'd just like (laughs) pop out his front teeth and watch them absolutely lose their minds. So hey, that's a part of parenthood, I think. Sure, sure. It's, It's hazing. It's a typical hazing ritual. I remember watching that movie and being disappointed that Lucy's character, you know, ended up the way she did because I felt she was far more interesting than Mina. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think a lot of people felt that way. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) So, Elizabeth, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Right now, they could go to thelightninginthestorm.com, which is the main website for our podcast. And, of course, it will be up in perpetuity. So whenever you feel like, you know, reading or listening to Walter Simonson's Thor will be there. I have a personal blog at lizbert.wordpress.com, and that's L-I-Z-Z-B-E-R-T. And I'm also on Twitter as Elizabeth F., and that's Elizabeth with an S, because my mom, you know, had to be fancy. My mom is Elizabeth with a Z, and so she was very particular that it's Elizabeth with a Z. So, yes, I completely understand. Yes, it's why I've always refused to be called Liz, because it would be Liz, and that makes no sense. (laughs) We must have standards, otherwise the world is chaos. Exactly. All right, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fun. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you very much to Elizabeth Alley for her time. When I asked Elizabeth for her signature cocktail, she specified that she's a vodka person who likes citrus juice and zest, but not flavored vodka, and that her favorite shot was the kamikaze, which is vodka, triple sec, and lime, and that she likes all citrus, and she will definitely make and drink whatever I invent at her next party. Now, we don't get a lot of requests for vodka drinks on the show, and I think vodka as a whole gets a little bit of a bad rap. What's said derisively is also its greatest strength. It has no taste or flavor to contribute to the drink. It only adds potency. That means you don't have to worry at all about your base spirit contrasting with any of the flavors you're using. And as such, your drink can be a showcase for those flavors. With that in mind, I present the Lorelei. In a shaker full of ice, combine one ounce of vodka, one ounce of elderflower liqueur, one ounce of Calvados, which is a French apple brandy that I'm very partial to, and one ounce of lemon juice. Shake vigorously and strain into a glass. If you like, you can serve this drink up in a martini glass, exactly as I've described, or you could have it in a highball glass with some ice and three ounces of club soda. The choice is up to you. And once this drink is mine, who knows what its power may accomplish at my command, though it's just too big to hide behind a pair of glasses and an Izod shirt. Enjoy.
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. You can pledge as much as you want, too. You can make it rain. Patrons get early access to episodes, cursive tweets, physical mail, and I would really just appreciate it a whole bunch. Speaking of appreciating things, thank you very much to Alex Hardison, who came by and dropped off a present for a little baby hero, which included a thermometer and a little hungry caterpillar book that he could crush and squish and make noise with. It was pretty cute. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a review, and I will read it out on the air. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used in the show going all the way back to episode one, including this one. It's Fury of the Storm by Dragon Force, and I absolutely could not resist. Come on, Elizabeth has a Thor podcast. You have to go epic. Next week, in a math of you first, it's the return of Chris Sims. And nothing will ever be the same again. Join me, won't you? Well, what's the baby's name? Oh, it's Hiro. H-I-R-O. Oh, nice. Excellent. His mother's family is Japanese. Oh, how cool. And so it's Hiro, technically. Hiro. But I'm, I'm accepted that every Australian is going to be like, oh, Hiro. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, cool, do your thing. Although we had one of her friends turn up and say, oh, is this little Hiro? Because she'd only ever seen it written. <laughs> of course, yeah. of course. No, it's cool, Julia. You do you. And the minute I put socks and pants and a shirt on my baby, he went from being a baby to being a small person. And I had a little moment, sure. and I'm like, <gasps> And it's so hard to dress them when they're that age because it's just like a it's like a bag of pudding. It can't help you at all. <laughs> yeah, and he also he hates being naked. Like he cannot stand. Whenever we change him, it's like hell is freezing over. He's like, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, I swear the first three months of Sarah's life, all she wore was a diaper and a swaddle because I was just swaddling her all the time. And I only dressed her if we were leaving the house. I was like, crap, I need, we're going to the doctor. I need to, I need to dress you like a real baby. <laughs> <laughs> My girlfriend's little brother has many stories of how he would not keep clothes on when he was a kid. And so he would just run around oh naked God. up until about the age of 10. And then, oh, so the, the way they cured him of it, which I heard it, and my face was just getting more and more horrified, is that her and her older sister basically like crash tackled him, and like bundled him outside <gasps> and chucked him out into the neighborhood with no clothes on. <laughs> and I'm just like, you realize he'll be he's gonna like, he's 30 now. He's probably gonna be narrating this to a therapist by the time he's 40. Exactly. It'll be a cautionary tale for his children if they inherit his tendencies. You know, watch out for your aunts. You better put some clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> or they'll do to you what they did to me. What they do to you. And he sort yes. of looks out the window and like takes a sip of his coffee and he's like, you'll learn. <laughs> <laughs>
Exactly. Hey, he was just lucky that happened before social media, you know. They'd have, like, concerned neighbors taking pictures and calling CPS or whatnot. And <laughs> the very least, it'd be on Facebook. You'll never believe what these two sisters did to their little brother. Exactly. <laughs> and what happened next? Pictures after the jump. <laughs>